the legal cannabis industry has unlocked generational wealth opportunities across the country. But the industry's regulatory complexities, constant state of change, and speed of evolution drive confusion for entrepreneurs and investors alike. On this podcast, we'll interview the industry leaders who are shaping the future of the legal cannabis industry to help our listeners understand these idiosyncrasies. This is Cannabis Unlocked, hosted by Key Investment Partners. All right, everybody. Well, welcome back to another episode of Cannabis Unlocked. I'm joined here by Russ Stanley over at Beacon Securities. I'm really excited to have Russ on the show, especially today, uh, given the recent announcement just within the last hour of uh, Biden announcing a formal pardon of um, cannabis, minor possession of cannabis offenses, et cetera. We'll, We'll get into a little bit in the podcast here, but nonetheless, very exciting. We see the securities ripping up like 30 plus percent today. Um, obviously a headline driven industry. We'll get into some of those dynamics today, but without further ado, I've got Russ here. Russ has 25 years of experience in the brokerage industry, um, about 20 years in equity research specifically. He's been a generalist for most of that time, um, covering a wide variety of sectors um, until ultimately dedicating himself to the cannabis space in 2016. He's a CFA charter holder and an MBA. Um, and working over at Beacon Securities, which is an independent investment bank based out of um, Toronto, um, a bank that has, you know, 40 plus years uh, of legacy in cannabis, clean tech, diversified healthcare, et cetera. But I don't want to steal Russ's thunder here. So Russ, if you want to introduce yourself to the show here, that, that'd be great. Uh, thanks. Uh, yep. Uh, Russ Stanley, I've uh, uh, been in equity research, as, as you mentioned, for, for 20 plus years. Uh, uh, cannabis the last six and and I don't think I've I've ever covered uh, a space that is uh, has been this uh, volatile this exciting uh, and and required this much uh, education be it on uh, uh, on politics on uh, on chemistry on agriculture uh, and and uh, I, I'm grateful for my prior experience because I did cover companies from a number of different spaces and that gives me a number of different lenses through which to see cannabis. And, uh, and, uh, it's been, it's been obviously one heck of a ride. And as you noted, uh, uh, today is, uh, is another one of those days, but, uh, you know, we've often joked that a, a year in cannabis is, uh, is like covering, uh, is like seven years covering any other space. So, uh, yep. the, uh, the, the voyage continues. Absolutely. And, and, you know, to, to your point there, it's, it's a true emerging market, even though it's in our own backyard, like you have to get to know this space politically, politically, geographically, I mean, all the way down from the state level down to the municipality to consumer mm-hmm. preference, product services, it's, it's a very fun, exciting space, but certainly a lot of moving parts here. So, so Russ, curious, you know, you were a generalist for the greater part of your career. Why, why did you ultimately decide to get involved in the cannabis space? Uh, sure, I was uh, I was with a competitor at the time, and a, and a former colleague had moved on to uh, another uh, another bank, and uh, he reached out to me and and said, uh, you know, we're looking for someone to uh, cover the uh, cover the cannabis space. And this was 2016. Uh, Canada, I'm based in Toronto, Canada, was still a medical only market at the time, but it was uh, the writing was on the wall. It was it was going to be. Uh, uh, the adult use market was going to be legalized. It was a question of how and the details. So the, uh, the growth potential was, was obvious. Um, you know, I've, 
I've covered a number of spaces and covered a number of what you might call themes before, and, and some of those have longer, longer shelf lives than others. So I was never really certain how long uh, the cannabis story would last, but I was mm-hmm. excited by the uh, by the potential, and there was just a uh, a huge opportunity to be telling something new. And, and in my line of work, you're always trying to always trying to tell someone in in, uh, in your shoes. Uh, something they haven't already heard before. And uh, obviously with cannabis, it was a wide open field, particularly then. And uh, I, I jumped at the opportunity. Yeah, that's fantastic. And for anybody listening right now, um, Beacon publishes a research list that I, I've been a part of for some time now. And and I believe, Russ, you, you head up the, uh, the initiative there. It, it's some of the best cannabis research I've seen. I highly recommend getting yourself on the list if you can, covering the publicly traded companies, et cetera. Um, I, I guess Thanks, with that Kyle. being said, it, it's mm-hmm. a, and, and I'll be happy to provide a link or anything that you provide Russ that we can, uh, we can give to folks here. Um, you know, give, given your time in the space, you've, you've really seen the industry go from kind of a, I always like to talk in baseball terms. So, you know, you kind of jumped into the industry and call it the top of the first inning or middle of the first <laughs> inning. And I, I'd say right now, even prior to federal legalization, we're still probably maybe at the bottom of the second inning, top of the third. Um, I, I wonder what your analogy would be there. But in that period of time, as the industries continue to mature, you know, Canada is now you know up and running. More and more states are coming online on this side of, of the aisle. What are some of the most notable transactions or companies that that you've worked with in the industry? Uh, I think you know, certainly following the major MSOs has been has been uh, uh, fascinating. I, I started like many analysts by covering the Canadian LPs, and uh, and then uh, uh, you know became exposed or met with. Uh, I think the first one was probably Green Thumb Industries, uh, also MPX Biocetical, which was eventually acquired, uh, and those were the first uh, U.S. operators I I did work on, and I was fascinated by the. By the state-to-state dynamics and, and understanding the nuances of each of each market, and and so we uh, uh, launched coverage of uh, of those names, uh, and, and certainly following certain markets like Florida with Trulieve and Illinois with with Cresco and and Verano as well as as well as GTI. Uh, it's always been uh, really exciting to try to try to understand what impact certain developments are going to have, and which which companies are more. Uh, are more exposed or more levered to certain developments than uh, than others. That's always the uh, always the uh, the biggest question that uh, that you get if you're in in my seat from uh, you know in speaking with uh, sales traders or or with uh, with buy side professionals. So uh, I'd say certainly covering the large MSOs has always been uh, has always been fascinating because you you watch their portfolio uh, build. You, you you saw different strategies whether it was focusing on retail first or focusing on uh, uh, wholesale first, and and then seeing now you're seeing more of a convergence of of the portfolios. There's far uh, there's an awful lot of overlap geographically. Many are involved in both retail and wholesale in a number of markets, and so now we've we've kind of transitioned to what I think is a, is a bit more kind of straight home financial analysis and comparing margins yep. uh, between between companies' margins on you know EBITDA or cash flow. And, uh, and, and really trying to hone in on which companies are really executing from a financial perspective. So it's, it's really transitioned from three, four years ago, talking about uh, a story about one company being uh, a play on this market or a play on that market to now saying, 
this company's EBITDA margins are, you know, X percent above average, whereas this other companies are, you know, they're underperforming. So it's a, it's been a fun, it's been a fun ride and uh, uh, you know, the funds continued, but I'd say the large MSOs are always, uh, always interesting to watch and to see the different ways they approach the market. You know, and I would say that most people's views, at least that I speak to, are that the MSOs are likely to be the big winners when federal legalization happens. But I've heard some pretty interesting strategies from the Canadian LPs on their um, kind of on their plan and their strategy to capture the U.S. consumer as well once they can get into THC, given they're listed on U.S. exchanges. What is your view on MSO versus Canadian LP? Do you see some, you know, are you able to discuss maybe some folks that you think are going to be big winners or some of the strategies that you see these guys deploying and, and where you think it makes sense? Sure. And, and uh, I am a proud Canadian, but all of my coverage is now is now U.S. Uh, I, I did. So you, you don't cover Canadian. you don't co- you don't cover them. Today. I, I don't formally cover Canadian LPs at this point. We did publish a piece recently. Uh, you may have seen where we were comparing margins between uh, Canadian LPs and, and the U.S. operators. We, we published a piece on the U.S. operators for quite some time. And and uh, with the last piece, we, we, we took a closer look at the way the Canadians perform and and. Uh, uh, tragically, they they just underperformed the U.S. names uh, almost across the board and on key me- key measures. And some and of that do you, is do you a, take into account like 280E and some of the other handcuffs that the U.S. MSOs are dealing with. Like, do you kind of remove that to give an apples to apples, or how are you how are you comparing we them? Did, on- couldn't really neutralize for that, but I think we also thought in terms of trends and, and in terms of understanding the histories of these companies that the U.S. operators were uh, you know more a little more bootstrapped from the mm-hmm. get-go and then went public and obviously tapped the markets to fund uh, or to accelerate their growth. But uh, many of them started off as, as true operators, whereas in, in the case in Canada, a number of companies uh, for a time, uh, you know, the moment you were awarded a cultivation license from Health Canada, you were instantly worth 50 million and, and access yeah. to capital was so much easier. And, and uh, you know, sadly we've learned as, as in all markets, when access to capital is, is easy or too easy, Companies don't always spend it very well, and uh, you know I think we we've seen evidence of that in the margins, and and so um, yeah I, I definitely uh, you know I, I definitely favor the U.S. U.S. names winning out in the U.S. because they've been uh, they've had to run a, a tighter ship from a financial perspective. They haven't had the access to capital that Canadian LPs have had, so they've had to spend more uh, carefully, even when spending in in you know on a large scale basis for capex, and they know their markets. Uh, yep. You know, better than, you know, as, as you know, whenever you're, you know, in this case, you're betting on an incumbent versus a new entrant. And I think in this case, the incumbents have an awful lot of, uh, uh, have a number of advantages over the Canadian LPs. So I would, I would choose the U.S. operators over the Canadian LPs in that context. Yeah, no, that's, it's, it's a good point that you bring up there because obviously we operate in the private markets, but you know, from a triangulation on valuation standpoint, we're very close to what the US MSOs or the Canadian LPs are trading at. And I think that that's a narrative that that we've hung on to for a long time and that we actually see a lot, at least in the private space, is that the cost of capital is just so high for these businesses that they've been forced basically because of the regulatory handcuffs to operate more efficiently, more effectively, you know, mm-hmm. whether that's through just simply better, you know, better spending on the CapEx, you know, cutting back on certain costs where they don't have it, um, or even some creative accounting methods that we believe that the truly well-run companies will be a light switch of profitability once we get 280E removed. Now, we definitely expect for 280E to 
be replaced, maybe not fully, but with some sort of social equity tax or whatnot. But nonetheless, you have companies that have been bootstrapped and forced to kind of operate under tighter pressures, mm -hmm. which has caused them to be better, more effectively, efficiently run businesses. Um, so switching gears a little bit here, there, obviously there was some exciting news that just came out in the last hour. Um, <laughs> President Biden announcing that he's going to pardon um, 6,500 folks for minor cannabis um, offenses. And I actually, um, just right before we got on the podcast, that news story is continuing to develop right now. So I'm excited to see what it sounds like even when we wrap up here. But um, I saw that he's also encouraging um, the feds to take a deeper look at cannabis regulations mm -hmm. From the federal level and he's also encouraging governors um, and legal cannabis states to rethink their cannabis laws as well um, talk to me a little bit about you know what you think the impact of this is going to be obviously we saw some of the um, some of the pot stocks jump tremendously in the last hour of trading um, do you think that fundamentally this pardon is going to make a difference to the industry or is this posturing to win votes? Or does this show willingness by, by the administration? I know it just happened, but I'm just curious what your initial kind of intuition is here. I, you know, my, my first, uh, uh, first stab is, is certainly, uh, you know, it's posturing in midterms a month away. Uh, the White House has been uh, noticeably quiet on the cannabis front. Uh, you know, President Biden had been, uh, you know, hasn't hasn't been viewed as a supporter of, of uh, cannabis. He's, I think, his, his support has been limited to medical, uh, and he's he's expressed uh, you know, opposition to to adult use. So it was, I think, it was always thought that whatever uh, reform we would see would be driven by Congress, and yep. and to see something come out of President Biden, um, you know, obviously the timing is. Is political, but to see something, anything come out of President Biden, I think is is a bit of a surprise. Uh, most most of the media had said that the, the White House had signaled, you know, not to expect anything before midterms. So um, while it is, I think, politically motivated, even coming a month in advance of midterms is is uh, you know caught a number of people off guard. And I personally was across the street attending a <laughs> yeah. seminar when my uh, I was caught started, off guard. <laughs> uh, phone started blowing up, and I. Uh, uh, raced out and and uh, and came back. So um, yeah, I think uh, I, I think most you know just about everyone was caught off guard, and and certainly the you know share prices reflect that. Um, I guess my big my questions at this point are what uh, what does this mean? How long does a review take? And what are the uh, what are the likely uh, recommendations to come back? And I, I, I my my bet is that this is a months, not weeks, type process. Absolutely. So it takes time. Um, you know, secondly, we, we don't know what the result is going to be. And, uh, and obviously, uh, between now and then we'll have midterms. So, you know, the political need to do anything, uh, one way or another, maybe, maybe reduced by the time we, we have, uh, by the time we have answers as to what the recommendations are for, for rescheduling, if yep. any, uh, I think the biggest question I have in the in the immediate term is what does this mean for the odds of passing safe banking, which is what, uh, which is the piece of legislation that I think most people have had their eyes on, uh, with respect to cannabis now for for uh, for for many weeks, if not months, and and uh, I think there have been growing optimism that you know we could see safe, an amended or, or augmented version of safe, what some call safe plus, uh, get done during the lame duck period after midterms. Uh, and it, there were, it looked like the, uh, the commentary suggested the odds of, of seeing something get done there were improving. Uh, I'm curious as to what this means for 
for the odds of, uh, of that happening now. I, I can imagine some senators uh, feeling more pressure or more comfort to get behind SAFE than, uh, than maybe they did before the development. And I can see the reverse as well. Uh, and in both cases, they, they might think that, well, President Biden's going to uh, uh, reschedule it or deschedule it in, in some form. And so maybe I should act now or maybe I don't have to act at all. And so we'll be watching the, you know, kind of the commentary that comes out of uh, out of the Senate and key senators in particular and, and see what this uh, what this means for for uh, for activity. So, I, you know, obviously, we think the motivation was was to win some votes. Uh, and, and but in a true policy sense, I'm curious as to what it means for for safe uh, after midterms. Yeah, that's great. And, and you actually brought something up that I had never really considered before. I. I'll be completely honest with you. I was very caught by surprise with the announcement today. I was not expecting to hear that. I've, I've heard rumors of maybe a joint medical marijuana descheduling bill coming in from a Democrat and, and a Republican maybe this week or next week. And I was kind of waiting around to hear that. But when I saw the headline of Biden making this pardon announcement, it really did catch me by surprise. Now, if, if maybe descheduling or rescheduling is on the table what does that mean you know for safe does would rescheduling marijuana to two or, or three does that open up banking does that open up credit cards or uh, like what, what would happen in that sense I, I don't think it opens up banking or, or credit cards necessarily certainly not at two and, and i'd have to see at three I, I mean it's it's i think uh and, and I could be off on this one. I know that uh, I guess heroin and LSD are schedule one, but it's always been pointed out that cannabis is schedule one, but I think cocaine is schedule two. Or yeah, schedule co cocaine three. and it, meth are, are schedule two, which is nuts it, to me because I've seen what it does to the people on the streets in Denver and certainly seems worse than marijuana. Yeah. So, you know, I think there are some, certainly some, uh, uh, some other substances a little lower down on the, on the scheduling, uh, uh, that, that I don't think we would view as legal. So again, that's part of what we mean when we say we need to see what the recommendations are. Is it down to two, down to three, or is it just eliminated altogether? Um, you know, yeah. that'll be a, uh, a big, a big driver, but if, it, if it's just taken down to two or three, I don't think that that necessarily opens, opens banking because, you know, merely reducing cannabis to cocaine level. I don't, I don't think that necessarily yeah. gets where you, gets you where you need to be. Um, but, uh, you know, that, that remains to be seen. Well, ho hopefully that means that while this is all being figured out, um, in Washington safe is still viable and, and very much alive. I certainly know that, you know, this is something that we've been waiting for, for a long time. And it does feel at least from our point of view, that this is the best chance we've ever had at passing safe. Now, with that being said, I probably wouldn't give it more than a coin flip of a 50, 50, I'll simply put, I you know, we're in the business of underwriting deals and, and I'd rather underwrite a deal to what the status quo is today and just be surprised on the upside. But look, if, and also simply put, I don't want to put my eggs in one basket and be heartbroken when the lame duck passes and safe doesn't pass. So yeah, I'm, I'm really curious to see what this means. You know, a lot of the chatter out there is, and, and I think Congress has, has done this in many other industries. It's, it's usually incremental reform. You don't usually just see a kind of a shotgun Hey, ultimately, mm -hmm. federal legalization just happens all at once. Do you think that this pardon and now the presidential order to for the feds to go in and, you know, rethink about cannabis and asking governors to, to think about cannabis in their states, 
does that put us on a path toward faster federal legalization? I mean, the stock market certainly looks like it thinks that that's what that means. I don't, I, I don't think I fall into that category. I think that, again, this is probably just posturing for, for votes, but I wonder what, what this could mean for the incremental push towards federal reform. Well, I, I think that, uh, and I, I've never been a politician, but if I was, if I was a politician, um, I would, I would, uh, who otherwise wasn't a fan of cannabis, I would, I would, I would look at this and say, uh, it's inevitable, and and the best I can do now is perhaps slow it, sure, um, or um, or at least uh, you know, if if allowing it to pass. Uh, allowing it to pass in, a, in an extremely controlled way. And so, um, I, and my point there is that I, I still think, uh, you know, today's development supports incremental reform rather than, uh, you know, rather than seeing a, 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 full, a full legalization in the near term, because I can imagine politicians deciding to get behind something like SAFE, which isn't legalization, of course. Uh, right. Uh, for, for viewers, it, it would just simply allow uh, federally regulated financial institutions to deal with uh, state le- state legal cannabis companies. So it is not legalization. It is something that you know can appeal to members of both parties uh, because uh, you know currently there's there's public safety concerns around cash and and how much cash is floating around in in dispensaries and so forth. So uh, I think there's uh, there's a motivation. Uh, and, and, and that's something that can be sold to people who don't like cannabis. And, and we have, we believe we have, you know, there is support from people who are not cannabis uh, supportive, but they are public safety supportive. And, and similarly, you know, if, if you've just seen Biden's announcement and you're thinking, okay, um, you know, this might be uh, a big step towards legalization, but if we get behind safe and it passes, that might mean taking uh, away some of the pressure, some of the urgency to go full legalization. So, and it, it might seem uh, a little counterintuitive, but by passing safe, you might slow the roll. And, and I don't think uh, my thinking on that is new. I think that that sort of logic is part of what uh, was governing uh, Senate, the Senate Majority Leaders uh, thinking and, and Senators Booker and Wyden uh, yeah. over a year ago, uh, you know, when they consistently indicated opposition to passing safe before Right. Uh, before looking at their bigger, broader legalization bill, it was the, the same thinking that if you if you take a small step forward, you might stop yourself from taking a giant leap. And, and that, I think, is is a scenario we're looking at today. So I can imagine uh, people still getting behind safe banking in order to uh, slow the broader legalization role, if you will. Yeah. Well, I can certainly tell you, as, as someone who's been in the trenches for some time now, we've the cannabis industry is way overdue for any tailwinds. And it's kind of <laughs> funny that now we're in this position where it's like, do we pass safe? Do we push towards federal legalization? I mean, from my point of view, let's get something done. I mean, we mm-hmm. something needs to change. I think safe banking is, is honestly probably makes the most sense for the industry today. Federal legalization, I think, is going to be something that even if it happened tomorrow would take years to figure out. I think that the states would likely, you know, do whatever they could to hold on to the cannabis economies that they've created for themselves. Mm-hmm. And safe banking is is really going to be helping who was supposed to be helped from the get-go in this whole movement. This is supposed to be helping the mom and pop operators. I mean, we all know that the MSOs, or et cetera, sure, cap- cost of capital is high compared to other businesses, but 
they're not really having trouble finding or accessing capital. Maybe it's costing a little bit more, but it's really the mom and pops, the folks at the grassroots movement level of this whole mm -hmm. thing that are being hurt by the banking restrictions today. So I think safe would be very, very much the immediate right thing to do. But nonetheless, we'll see. I'm also not a politician, so uh, I, I wouldn't place a bet on anything that I'm saying here. I'd rather just say stick to the fundamentals and, and you know, invest on, on that. So with that being said, um, you know, I'm curious, I, as a, I always like to wrap up the podcast with asking for, you know, your advice, like what kind of advice would you maybe give, I guess, given today's um, announcement, sometimes I ask for what advice would you give to companies or what advice would you give to cannabis investors? I think today, maybe it's more relevant to say, what kind of advice would you give to cannabis companies with regards to the headlines floating around out there? Uh, I, I, I don't think they need the advice because I think they always, they always tell the street that they plan their business around the world as it is today. And not unlike your, you know, your comments earlier, you, you, you underwrite a deal on the status quo. And if, if, the, if you get a tailwind on the regulatory or legislative side, then all the better. And I think that that's uh, the approach that most cannabis companies take. And uh, I, would, I would advise them to, to continue with that approach. And, and certainly in this, you know, given the macro headwinds that we're otherwise facing and the broader equity market uh, you know, being, being, you know, behaving the way it has, uh, you'd say, you know, take things the same way that you have. Don't change your playbook, but just be cautious with your capital because uh, external capital is getting tougher to find. As you, as you noted, uh, the large MSOs still have access to capital. It, uh, it is expensive by normal business standards, but it's still less expensive than small company standards. But on, on the whole, for any company that goes looking for money right now, it's just going to be uh, tougher and more expensive than it would have been a year or two years ago. And and so for, for cannabis companies, I'd... Uh, I'd say this is just a headline. Uh, you know, we don't see any policy changes yet, and and continue on with your plans, which were based on on, on the status quo as far as the the legislative environment was concerned. I think that's very very sound and and smart advice. Um, well, Russ, it's it's been a pleasure having you on the show. I, I think for anybody tuning into this episode, you're going to learn a lot about the state of the markets today, and and you know what the potential outcomes are for not only the announcement today, but how we should th be thinking about safe and ultimately you know we get a lot of investors that tune in here how you should be thinking about underwriting your investment opportunities in the space so thank you russ again for having you i look forward to continuing our our relationship off offline here and and thanks everybody for tuning in please feel free to reach out to me with any questions um i mentioned that russ has that that awesome uh research report and list that they're on so if you guys are interested in getting on to that um, please reach out. We will also have a, uh, a link or instructions on how you could potentially sign up for that research there too. Thanks so much, everybody. Thank you, Russ. Thank you. Thanks for having me.